This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The story that you've heard all day on CHML today, Hamilton police investigating an overnight shooting at the home of notorious mobster Pat Musitano. What does that mean? Well, we're pleased to be joined by somebody who is not unfamiliar to this program. It's the first time I get a chance to talk to him. Ross McLean, crime specialist from former Toronto police officer, joins us. Ross, pleasure to talk to you finally. How are you? I'm doing good, and it's time to talk some family business, I guess. So to speak, so to speak. Okay, first of all, um, the fact that uh, police confirmed that there have been uh, shots fired at the East End home on St. Clair Boulevard off Main Street East. Um, and we're asking you to put on your former Toronto police officer hat now. Um, does that surprise you? Well, no, it, it doesn't surprise me. It's certainly uh, an evolution of the tale that we're looking at here. Uh, let's look at some of the history here. We, of course, had the murder of the brother, Justin May, not too far away. Clearly, clearly a contracted, very professional hit. The police are still looking at that one. I mean, it was carried out very well. I mean, contrary to what happens a lot of times, people thinking about the mob and, and this when there's hits, they're not always done very well. You get a lot of idiots sometimes that take up the jobs and do them, but we haven't seen any progress, uh, at least on the outside, with the police solving that one. Following that, we see this shooting last night at about after 2 a.m. in the morning at the house of the brother, who is uh, apparently, by all means, the, the more feared, uh, tougher part of the family for doing this. And I can give you my read, if you want, as to what I think about why these bullets went off at 2 in the morning. Please do. Okay, so what we're seeing here is, is a, put this up against the hit that took place on the brother. At Shortly after 2 in the morning, you have a car apparently roll up, fire shots into a house. We can tell from looking at the, the house and where the shots are placed. I saw from some of the global news pictures that were put up that they're basically spread out. It's not a tight grouping of shots. It looks like it went into the front ground floor window of the house where they have shutters closed. And all those who watch our Godfather movies know that you always keep your drapes closed, uh, you know, when you're in your house sort of thing. So it certainly appears to me that what we're seeing here was not any attempt at a hit. It was an attempt at sending a message and sending a signal and a threat, because there's very likely you're not going to hit anybody on the ground floor at 2 in the morning uh, with the building. And on top of that, we've got police forensic experts all over this crime scene. So they're gonna, there's apparently casings that have been found on the sidewalk outside of the house so they're going to know how many shots were fired what type of gun was used they'll have a signature on the gun based on the markings on the shell casings you know and perhaps if we also happen to know which direction the car was going ted we'll know if there was one or two people involved in this so for instance if the shots came out of a driver's window you only need one person they came out of the passenger side window that it was going you've got two people involved so the police will actually be able to learn a fair amount from just what they'll be able to study at the scene i'm just wondering ross uh, playing devil's advocate here uh, obviously they're 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 looking now at pat musatano why send a message why not just if if they're going to basically perform the hit why not just do that as opposed to sending a message well, that, that's exactly it. There's a message being sent. I always tell people distinguish to distinguish between a threat and an actual attack. When it's an actual attack, just like uh, with the brother, he didn't see it coming, he was killed. Just like at the end of The Sopranos, he didn't see it coming, he, just, he was just killed. There's no warning. This is obviously a threat. It's not a tight grouping of shots. It's fired at a house, into shutters, to spray the house, at a time of, at a time of night when no one's likely to be down in the living room for doing it. So this is to send a message to either get him to 
back off, move forward, or do something. There's there's a communication that's going on here with this attack. I'm. Let's go back now. Let's talk about uh, the the hit on Johnny Pops Papalia that happened uh, back uh, tw- twenty years ago. There are those people that are saying that uh, this was, as they say, it's a uh, revenge is a, a dish best served cold. If that was the case, that they took out Angelo Musatano 20 years after the hit on Johnny Papalia, are you surprised it took that long to exact revenge? Well, the mob are like elephants. They don't forget. I mean, it's the, the mob is all about, ever since the first Godfather movie came out, it really helped romanticize organized crime. And even mobsters, they talked to mobsters post that movie coming out. They loved the movie, and it gave them a reason to feel uh, like they were somebody or doing something. So there's definitely memories attached to this. But the mob is also about business. So is this all personal? Is this all business? Or does it make sense to have a blend here? I, I, I said my sense is there's a, there has to be a business reason behind this to just fire warning shots. I mean, by firing warning shots at Pat Mositano now, he has been put on the alert that, look it, we've got guns, we're coming for you, we're doing this. So naturally what he's going to do is he's going to defend himself and be much more cautious, which makes getting after him a lot tougher. So to my mind, it certainly looks like a message being sent, and we'll have to see how the police do with uh, their contacts, their intelligence, to see if they can find out the motivation of uh, who else is behind this, because contracted murder is one dirty business. Our guest uh, is Ross McLean, crime specialist, security expert, former Toronto police officer, RossMcLeanSecurity.com. If you're Pat Musitano, um, put yourself in his shoes for for a sec if you can, Ross. Um, You don't automatically open up to police about what's going on, or do you? Well, in this case, uh, I did see a comment uh, that said that he is not, the police have went to talk to him, and he has not reached out to the police for assistance. And, of course, you get back into the whole honor, and uh, we don't need the police to settle our business. Once again, you go back to the to the mob movies, you know, where uh, the godfather told the undertaker, why do you go to the police to settle your problems? You should come to me. We'll settle our own problems sort of thing. So don't. I would not expect the police are going to be getting any cooperation on this. Now, what about from uh, the other um, the other part of this, of course, the murder of Angelo Musitano? Uh, in your experience, are you confident that there will be an arrest made, or will there be a lot of people that uh, are not willing to volunteer information? It's, it's going to be tough. A lot of this will lie in the forensics. I believe the police did recover the car, uh, the initial car that was used during that hit. So, once again, if someone got a little bit sloppy, Uh, using the other car, they could have left behind some forensic information. So the police may or may not have something to work with. Uh, You know, the intelligence services will play their cards very close to their vest. They don't want people to know what they know or what they have. Uh, But they're pretty good at keeping a long memory, too, and they put the jigsaw puzzles together, and they'll be looking to solve some of the parts of this. And don't forget, we may also find that there may be CCTV of this car, uh, that was involved in this one as well, too, with so many people having home CCTV and the different ways of recording license plates around cities and those sort of things. You just never know. Would we then be su- surprised, Ross, taking this one step further? We're not suggesting this is going to be the case, but if something bad en- ends up happening to uh, to Pat Musitano based on what we have seen with what happened yesterday, I guess we shouldn't be surprised if uh, if the ultimate revenge is exacted on him? 
Well, we'll have to see. We'll also have to see if there's another message uh, sent out. You know, the mob is a lot more disciplined than, than typical gangster sort of thing. I often say, and it's true of Hamilton, it's true of Toronto, when you, when, you, when you see our bad gang wars going on, when you see one bad gang shooting going on at 11 o'clock at night, I can almost guarantee you at 3 o'clock in the morning there'll be another shooting in the other part of town where they believe it originated from. However, the, uh, as we've seen with uh, the other brother, the, the mob are, are patient killers. They'll take their time to find their spot. So the more interesting part is, what is this going to be about? If this is about business, there must be some rather large dollars involved. And if there's rather large dollars involved, there's probably another rather large family uh, involved that wants those dollars. So uh, the intelligence services, Hamilton Police, the RCMP, they'll all be taking a look at this to try and figure out the motive in behind this. Without giving um, state secrets away, I'm, I've always been fascinated by uh, people, police that uh, you know, t- do intelligence work. I don't want to say they go undercover, but in some, some ways they do, and they go and they, they exact information and they get uh, the details that, that they need. Um, Talk about that work, because that that seems to be, uh, that can be maybe a little frightening sometimes where a police officer is uh, talking to an informant and maybe wondering how this is going to end up. Yeah, it's it's really something to work. I'll tell you from my experience, I was able to see, I did a little bit of plainclothes work, a little bit of, you know, slight undercover work. And then you've got more undercover officers that work where they grow their hair out more, they dress differently, they do things. And then when you get into the intelligence services, you get into people who are working deep undercover. And I have to tell you, at one point, I came across a guy who was working deep undercover. He was uh, involving the bike gangs. And uh, I was ready to bust the guy's chops and arrest. I could not tell that he was a cop. I had no idea that he was a cop doing it. I mean, these guys who, when they go deep undercover, they take a lot of risk. It's very dangerous work. It's very tough on the psyche as well, too. Um, as the one most successful undercover guy I knew of told me, he said, Ross, you got to become a pig. you got to live like a pig. And you have to be able to come back from that and not be a pig when you go forward, when you come out of it. He says not everybody can do it. That's why sometimes they stay in for shorter periods of time. So the police have got a lot of very, very dedicated people. I know the Hamilton Police Department does as well. So we'll have to see what they find with their grapevines. How how much of a mental strain is it on on uh, uh, as you mentioned, uh, plain clothes or undercover or somebody is deep undercover? I mean, you already kind of talked about it, but uh, what about uh, not sharing any information with family members, for for example? I know they have to keep keep quiet, but boy, uh, that's something that it's I would suggest is really difficult to keep inside. It, it, I'm telling you, it is a skill. In fact, as I said, when I talked to this one guy, he was one of the most successful deep undercover serving agents in North America. I worked with him when he came out and he worked in uniform. And uh, I talked with him about, hey, I, maybe I'd like to try that, do this. And he started explaining to me and telling me some of the stories, as you say, some of the secrets behind what goes on. I listened to him and I said, you know what? I said, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I said, I, I, I can't do that. I mean, that's just not me. I could not do what some of these guys have to do. It's very dangerous work, and I tell you, the supervisors have to be very careful with them, that they look after them, and they save them from just going off the deep edge themselves. So obviously, in this case, and we're kind of getting off the the topic a little bit, but I would suggest that perhaps PTSD is something that comes into play down the road when they finish that particularly long and dangerous assignment? Well, it's dangerous, and don't forget, you, you'll, you'll get threats and other things when you have to come out to testify against these people. You know, and it's tough enough to do it as a cop. It's extremely tough to do it as an individual. 
Um, you know, I've often said before, I know other people in the media have said, we'd like to see some maybe some stronger witness protection program. Uh, Money is being spent to help solve some of these problems because it's uh, it's pretty difficult, you know, when uh, the horse's head shows up on your property and, you know, the court case is coming up. So, you know, not to overly dramatize it, but I think that the Hamilton police, they look at they've got a long history of dealing with this. They've got some of the toughest coppers going. And uh, I'm sure working with the RCMP, they'll put together some answers on this one. This is kind of a, a, an oddball question, but I'm wondering, uh, Ross, um, generally, and, and you kind of talked about how uh, the mob has changed in the last few years, in the last uh, few decades from what they were. Generally, when you talk to them away from their quote-unquote mob business, are they nice people generally? A- absolutely, they can be. In fact, um you know, I'll go back to one time I knew uh, one copper who was, uh, we were driving Harleys at the time, and he was quite friendly with some bikers, and he was telling me how friendly the bikers were to him, and hey, da-da-da-da, I said to him, buddy, I said, you don't really quite understand how it goes. I mean, uh, they, they can be the nicest person to you until it's that time when you have to get the kiss on the cheek, and it's time that they're done with you. I mean, that is that is the one thing about... Um, you know, mobs, some of these gangsters we have today, they're absolutely heartless and unemotional, psychopathic in their ability to kill some of them. They're, it's just, it's really something else. Ross McLean is, uh, has been our guest, a crime specialist, security expert, uh, former Toronto police officer from RossMcLeanSecurity.com. A, a look at uh, what happened last night or in the early hours of the morning at the overnight shooting at the East End, home of uh, notorious mobster Pat Musatana. We'll keep uh, an eye on this and see what happens down the road. And uh, at the very least, it'll be interesting to see what the next move will be in, in this entire case. Ross, thanks for the time. Fascinating look at what goes on at this. Appreciate the time. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. For the next few minutes, I want to talk about uh, the MPs are on a summer break now, and uh, the Prime Minister spoke to the media today, and we kind of want to bring in a um, gentleman who uh, has uh, shared his uh, his insight into what happens up on Parliament Hill, and that is uh, Henry Jasek, Professor of Poli Sci at McMass University, who joins us. Henry, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Ted. Now, let's, uh, let, let's go back to that night of October 19th, 2015, when we saw the television shots of the new Prime Minister and his wife, Sophie, beaming with pride and emotion and everything else, and everything was all sunny sky, so to speak, to use the term. What's happened since then? Well, a bunch of things have happened. Uh, the first of all, I mean, in that going back to that uh, night, uh, one of the things that everybody felt, or certainly a lot of people felt, was that this is going to be a generational change. We're going to have a lot of young people running the government, uh, people who hadn't been involved before. Uh, and that has you know, worked out not too badly over, over time, although there's been some of the people, you know, not having much experience uh, in public life have, you know, have uh, gotten into a little bit of problems, have underperformed to a bit. I think Justin Trudeau has probably realized that in certain situations he's going to have to rely on more, somewhat more mature people. Without saying that, but you could sort of notice that there's, you know, the mature faces in the in the House of Commons and in his cabinet seem to be uh, more important than they were at that point. The second big thing that happened, of course, was Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, and that has sort of overshadowed all sorts of things happening here. I wonder, uh, Henry, when we look back to to that election. Um, 
and I can't really recall who was in the race for the liberal leadership prior to that, but was this basically, and I, I know we may be rehashing old history here, but was the outcome of that election destined to that it was going to be an anti-Stephen Harper vote regardless? It was, but I think uh, we'll have to give full credit to Justin Trudeau. He started that election in third place. Uh, the NDP was in first place. Harper, the Conservatives were always in second place. It was really a question of who was going to be the main contender to the to the Conservatives, the NDP or the Liberals. And uh, for a long time before that election, certainly a year before the election began, and in the beginning, it looked like the NDP, and the NDP thought they were going to coast into uh, into the uh, victory. But Harper called for a long election period. He thought that would work for him. He could really, you know, knock down the two other opponents. He knew he was not leading, and he figured the campaign, he had the money and the experience, and he thought he could knock these two people down. Well, uh didn't quite work out that way. I mean, he stayed pretty much where he was, but it was uh, people took a hard look at both the NDP and uh, and Justin Trudeau, and by the end of the election said, oh, we prefer Justin Trudeau over uh, Tom Mulcair and the NDP. Without uh, getting into the age thing, you and I both go back to uh, the summer of 67 and the election in 1968. Pierre Elliott Trudeau, I can still hear them saying Pierre E. Trudeau. I think it was 1208 when they, he, he yeah. became leader of the Liberal Party. Right. Um, and I was looking at that election night thinking history has repeated itself. Uh, it's eerily similar to what happened with his father is it not oh absolutely and uh and and i think he he um he i think you know obviously he wasn't even born then but i mean i think he uh, knows a lot about that period and i think one thing he has learned uh from his father is his, when his father came in his father sort of ignored the economy and there was a, a small recession after uh within 2 years after he had uh, been elected and then he had that close shave in 72 where he had was reduced to a minority government with only one more seat than the progressive conservatives i think his son knows about that <laughs> and he's uh, certainly uh, puts a lot more emphasis on the economy in his first term than his father did. But there's a lot of similarities in how they campaign. Uh, there have been some um, people, and I understand it's their job as opposition members to uh, not necessarily be happy with what the uh, the government in power is doing, but I know that um, the Conservatives, uh, with Andrew Scheer uh, at the helm, uh, he, uh, he kind of took a shot. Uh, at uh, the tr- the prime minister said we're almost at, at the halfway mark for the mandate, and it's obvious the sunny skies have clouded over. That's uh, kind of a shot. It is a sunny ways slogan. Right? Yeah. Is the bloom off the rose, so to speak, halfway through the, the mandate for Justin Trudeau? Oh yeah, I mean and that's natural. I don't care how much you're going to win uh, a, a big victory. Uh, any leader has to very quickly uh, get over the fact that you know. The best night he, uh, he's, uh, he or she's ever going to have is when they win that first majority government. There'll never be another night like that, and that's the top of the life that, you know, that you're ever going to have as a politician. And, and any smart politician has to realize, well, I am going to have adversity. Uh, in the middle of my first term, there is going to be problems, but I'm going to have to figure out a way to uh, re-energize the party, the population, bring the, the people home who voted for me the first time but may have some doubts in the middle of my term i've got to figure that out and so i'm never you know things will never be as rosy as as that first night and uh and good politicians realize that and they they uh 
try to protect themselves. No, I think Justin has. Uh, I mean, he's learning. He's learning, I, as I said. He does have somewhat more mature people uh, uh, that he's paying attention to. You can see it in little ways. He, he hasn't said that I'm, you know, I was wrong to appoint all these inexperienced young people to important posts. Uh, he, he, he's tried to, he does it because he certainly does not want to alienate the young voters, and that was very important for him. But he has, I think, by his actions shown that, you know, that uh, some of these young inexperienced people, yeah, probably were moved in positions of uh, importance, uh, you know, more than they should have. And also, I think he's learning to deal. Now, Trump is a real challenge. I mean, just, I mean, any Canadian prime minister would have a real, real problem with Donald Trump. I mean, uh, and and uh, I think Trudeau has learned already that you can go down uh, to Washington, do all sorts of nice things, uh, you know, curry favor with Ivanka Trump, his daughter, uh, do all sorts of things. And then when you leave town, uh, after a few days, you hear the... Uh, Trump started bad-mouthing Ontario, uh, sorry, Canada in various ways. So I think he's learned that, you know, you just can't go down there, you know, and be a very skillful person and getting on Trump's good side and expect it to last. I mean, nobody, I mean Trump is just not, 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 not that type of person. So now he's learned he's going to have to be a lot tougher with Trump than he thought he uh, would need to be. Uh, how uh, is it important now, uh, as we say, halfway through the mandate, to you have the um, NDP, uh, the leader that's on his way out, Thomas Mulcair. You have a brand new leader uh, that they uh, elected uh, a few weeks ago for the Conservatives, for Andrew Scheer. So there isn't, I don't want to use the term stability, but obviously one's on the way out, one's just coming in. Uh, how do the Liberals jump on that and take advantage of that in the second half of their mandate? Well, first of all, they have to really wait to see who's going to be the NDP leader, because I think sheer i may be wrong about this i mean the con, certainly uh, right now the conservative party is the number two party in canada it's not in third place there's no question about that and harper actually left it in not too bad a position he did lose the election but it was not a you know an overwhelming disaster i mean he was so reduced to a second place and it was a very respectable second place but the new person i think is you know is inexperienced and not well known and I don't think, I may be wrong, but I don't think he's going to be a real challenge uh, in the next election. And I think the people who selected him probably thought it was going to be the election after the next election that's going to be important for Sheer. Now, the bigger the bigger problem is likely to be the NDP, possibly, because if the, you know the type, they may get a leader that will appeal to people. Who, who did support, and many New Democrats or leaning Demo- New Democrats did support Trudeau in the last election. And if they can, if he, if, if the new leader can bring a lot of those home, uh, can take seats away from Trudeau, and he may be reduced to a minority. So that's what he's got to worry about is a, a, an NDP leader that's going to take some of his seats away and bring him down to a minority. Can you kind of hone in on, on what you see for the first two years of the mandate from a, uh, an economic standpoint? Uh, they have been talking about the March budget and uh, legislation to implement the Canada-European trade deal and, and, and what have you. Um, first first part of the mandate from where you sit what would you give the government as a grade as to handling uh, the economic issues of the country okay i'm quite happy to give them a grade but i think there are limits to what a, any a canadian government can do for the economy because we're so influenced by what's happening in other countries and 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 you know the economic 
forces that just travel across boundaries. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Uh, I know people have big expectations about their political leaders controlling the economy, but I think I think there's they have to be a little more mo- modest in their expectations. But having said that, I think that uh, Trudeau. Uh, you know, it's probably been a bit, a bit disappointed. He, uh, you know, I think he expected that he that his measures would essentially boost the Canadian economy a little bit uh, more than they have. Um, I think uh, I think he's I think he's been slow in getting that infrastructure money spent. I think the the best way he can you know boost the economy is by having a big infrastructure infrastructure boom. And he hasn't you know they have not been. T- able to implement implement that as fast as they hoped they would. Now, they still have a little bit of time, and I think that's what they're hoping, but he's, he's got to really get going on that, certainly, you know, by by next fall and next winter, because he can't wait. You know, once he gets past the two-year mark, you know, uh, just authorizing to spend money and then not spending it, that's not going to make, have a positive impact on the economy. So he's he's got to he's got to really get that money out the door, and he's got to get things built. Well, you did mention that you would give him a grade, so I'm curious. Oh what, yeah, I, I would say right now I'd give him a B minus, a B and, and, and B minus, and it's mainly because he's been so he has been slow to get the money uh, actually going out there, going to work and building things. So I don't think we have seen very much built by the federal government in infrastructure. Uh, over the past, oh, you know, over the past year or so, and so it is slow. And sometimes people find it hard to imagine. But sometimes it's hard to spend money. And governments, governments, you know, find it sometimes hard to to spend it because there's a lot of you know contracts you have to have. You have to have them probably written. You got to have a lot of partners. You of course don't want to rush it too fast and have somebody take advantage of you and waste the money. And that would be a disastrous from a government. So you, so it's not that easy to get these things going. But he's going to have to pay more attention to that. You mentioned Donald Trump, Henry, just before we wrap up. Um, is it uh, too simplistic to say the old expression that uh, that when uh, the U.S. sneezes, Canada gets a cold? That uh, does, and you kind of mentioned this that no matter what happens, that it is difficult to do things economically with what been happening in the states is is that one of his still his major battles to kind of make sure that things are on on track as far as trying to deal with the u.s and nafta and everything else oh i say for sure now but the the thing is about the u.s and you're absolutely right about the sneezing and the cold story there uh the the more most important thing for canada is to have a prosperous united states when the united states is prosperous and buying a lot of things you know, organizations and people and stuff, they buy a lot of our our things and our and our services. The So the best thing that could happen is that the American economy becomes robust. Now, it has gotten better. There is no question about it. The problem is, is that the, um, the, the Congress, the U.S. Congress and Trump, uh, they, they, especially the Congress and the Republicans control that. They, they really don't like to spend money, <laughs> and so a lot because a lot of you know, died in the will Republicans really believe the government spends too much money. But when they do that, of course, the the American economy staggers a bit. It doesn't, you know, it needs uh, it needs money to be spent, particularly on infrastructure, and and Trump has not been able to get, you know 
get his uh, in- infrastructure spending uh, going and out the door. So he, he's actually, in terms of administration, has been an, an inept president so far. He, he's really got very little done since he's come, you know, economically since he's come to office. And I'm not sure he's going to be able to do it. And then he's going to face, you know, probably uh, Democratic strength and, uh, you know, in the off-year elections. And, and and it may well be in a very crazy, unexpected way, if if the Republicans in the Congress really get beat up in next year's election and get Democrats, the Democrats will start spending money, and then both Trump and the Democrats have common cause because they'll have to look. They're going to be looking to the election in uh, in uh, you know uh, three years from now, four years from now, and uh, so they both might start spending money. But I think the biggest impediment to Trump right now is the Republicans in the Congress who really don't like to spend money, and they have not been doing. You know, they they haven't been able to do anything on the budget or anything else. They've they've been going very slow, and Trump just can't get them moving. Last uh, question for you, Henry, uh, and you've kind of uh, mentioned it already, but for people that uh, maybe want to kind of focus when uh, parliamentarians come back on the Hill, come back to work in the fall, if there's one thing that they should keep an eye out to see how the federal government is performing in the second half of their mandate, what would that be? Well, as again, it's the infrastructure spending. Are we seeing projects being started? Do we see, you know, do we, you have to keep track of a lot of these? Do people see projects being announced and with a start day and there's really shovels going into the ground? Uh, do we see that? And that's that's the thing I'll be looking for. And they've really got to get going, certainly over the next, uh, certainly in the next nine months for sure. Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. Thanks for the update. And uh, as a political uh, junkie like myself, you've kind of honed me in on what I should be watching for in the second half. So we'll see how the second uh, half of the mandate for the prime minister turns out. Thank you for the time and enjoy the rest of the day. Okay, thank you, Ted. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. He has finally been inducted into the, or will be at least in November, the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, Hamilton native Dave Andrichuk. There's a lot of numbers and a lot of uh, discussion. And, and joining us to talk about the up in uh, impending induction into the into the Hockey Hall of Fame is a guy who I haven't talked to and seen in quite some time. Longtime Leafs reporter and blogger between the posts, Howard Berger. How are you, sir? Ted, uh, it has been a while, hasn't it? How are you doing? I'm doing well. Listen, right right from the get-go, I'm surprised Yuri Sirha didn't get the call to the Hall of Fame. Your thoughts? Well, uh, <laughs> just the fact that he would often go on TV and, you know, when they asked him about cutting down his angles, of course, Yuri uh, was from the uh, former Czechoslovakia, so his English wasn't great, but uh. when he would uh, be asked, he would say, well, it's not my steal. <laughs> and so it wasn't his steal to go down on his knees, and that alone should have gotten him into the Hockey Hall of Fame. I, I, I would agree with you. And yes, here's yes. here's one more name. Course, I've been I've been vouching for uh, for for John Grisdale for years, <laughs> you know, from back in the 1970s, but he hasn't gotten in yet either. There's a couple of names I'll throw at you right now: Dale Smedzmo and Connie Madigan. How's that? Well, the Madigan was Mad Dog Madigan, of course, uh, yep. for the the, the, number, the amount uh, that he he fought uh, back in the minor <laughs> league. Dale Smedsmo, just for his name alone, I mean, he should be in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He played. He played. Not a, a uh, famous magician, Smedsmo. <laughs> who, 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 I Kreskin, Kreskin, close, close enough, close enough. So listen, let's talk about Dave Andrichuk um, getting into the Ooh. Hall of Fame. Uh, are you surprised it took this long? Uh, well. 
whether I don't, who knows what the process is. So how can any of us be surprised or not surprised? And that's sort of the, uh, if, if you're going to criticize the Hockey Hall of Fame selection committee, and you can't criticize the, the members, they're certainly uh, all very esteemed, but if you're going to criticize the process, it's, we don't know what goes on. We don't know what the criteria is. So how can any of us say, well, we're surprised or not surprised? The, the two Irishmen that stood behind the Leaf bench, uh, they had to wait until they died, until they were in the Hockey Hall of Fame, Pat Quinn and, and Pat Burns. And so, uh, you know, uh, could that not have been done a few years earlier? So, uh, the, you know, these men could have enjoyed, uh, uh, you know, the induction. There's, there's all kinds of questions, but this is a no-brainer. You know, there's thousands of people, the players have, have played in the NHL, thousands of, of wingers and, and centermen and, and, uh, and defensemen, even goalies score nowadays. And, and he's 14th overall. Only 13 players in the history of the National Hockey League have scored more goals than Dave Andrichuk. You know, he scored uh, 640 goals. You score 600 goals in the National Hockey League, you're in the Hall of Fame. You, score, you, you, you hit 600 home runs in baseball, you're in Cooperstown. And I know that sometimes there's a bit of a difference between hitting a home run. Sometimes it's been easier back in the steroid era than scoring goals. Sometimes uh, back when uh, Timo Solani and Gretzky and, you know, and Alex Mogilny were scoring 76 and 92 goals, maybe it was easier to score the goals than in the dead ball baseball era. But if you even it all out, it's pretty darn close. And no one with 640 home runs is going to be denied admittance into Cooperstown, probably on a first ballot. You know, I, no brainer. And and I I was kind of surprised by this because I I really probably wasn't following it as closely as I should. It took nine tries for Andrew Truck to get into the Hockey Hall of Fame. That's mind boggling. You know, it, it seems mind boggling. I don't know what they held against him. Uh, he won a Stanley Cup. May not have been the you know the best player on that team, uh, in, uh, the Tampa Bay team in 2004. He was well past his prime, but he was still the guy that raised the cup. He was the captain of that team, and I covered that uh, final series. He was pretty good. You know, he wasn't the Dave Andrichuk of you know of the years with uh, Gilmore when he was scoring 54 goals a year here in Toronto. But he was still pretty good, and uh, I mean he's he's done everything that you deserve. Uh, that you need in order to uh, be, you know, elected into the uh, Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, you know, the, every year there's extenuating circumstances based on those uh, that are um, uh, eligible that year. So you can look back. I don't have all the, the past nine years, and I have you in front of you, uh, Ted, uh, the last nine years of who went in and, you know, could he have gotten in in that year or the year before. And, and there's always an argument of, of, of those that are left off uh, in these circumstances, as there are as there is in baseball. So I just think it's, uh, it's overdue. The guy scored 640 goals. Everybody around him is in the hall. All the 13 players above him, Gretzky, Gordie Howe, Yermer Yager will be, obviously, as soon as he's eligible. Brett Hall, Marcel Dion, Phil Esposito, Mike Gartner. There was a, a, a hue and cry over Gartner getting in. The guy scored 708 goals. I don't care if he didn't play for a Stanley Cup winner. That couldn't have been his fault. 708 goals he scored. And then took him years to get into the Hall of Fame. Messier, Iserman, Lemieux, Solani's going in this year. Luke Robitaille, Brendan Shanahan is in. Those are all the players that are ahead of Andrichuk. Then you go below him, Sackick is in. Aginla will be in on the first ballot. Bobby Hull is in. Cicerelli is in. Yari Curry is in. Mark Recchi's going in this year. Mike Bossy, Joe Newendike, Matt Sundin, Mike Madano. It goes on and on and on. He's the only player in that group of the first 20 or 25 goal scorers in, in National Hockey League history 
that, you know, until now, wasn't inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame. I don't know how you can make an argument. When you, uh, you actually bring up a very interesting point, and I'm going to compare uh, two sports because I think that they're very similar. Uh, they say, well, Andrew Chuck and uh, Stanley Cup wins. That's a little uh, unfair. That's, that's one, like when they say a guy should not be in the Hall of Fame because he never won the Super Bowl. To me, that is pretty unfair. Do you agree? Well, I, I would think that, you know, you are inducted into a Hall of Fame based on, it seems nowadays, on your individual statistics, on what you, I mean, it's all about stats. I mean, there's guys that could be in the Hall of Fame that, uh, you know, are nowhere near these numbers, but they were good people. They were good people in the community. You know, they were, they were popular on their teams. They fought. They got to tie Domi. Let's just use Domi as an example. Right. Fans loved them, Okay. The fans loved him here. He fought. You know, I mean, he'll never get. You wouldn't even have him mentioned in the same sentence as a Hall of Fame because he didn't have the stats. So it's all about scoring stats and and home run hitting stats uh, in baseball. And, and so you know, and it shouldn't be a uh, uh, what you've done in with respect to your team because a lot of times that's out of your control. I mean, I've been sitting here pounding away, and I'm going to again that Rick Vive should have a banner at the Air Canada Centre. He was the first 50-goal scorer in Leafs history. He did it three years in a row. He scored more than 50 goals in the early 80s. Is it his fault he played for lousy teams? No. You know, If they had more players like Rick Vibe, maybe they wouldn't have been lousy. So it's the same type of a thing. Marcel Dion never won a Stanley Cup. He's fifth all-time in goals scored and, of course, is in the Hockey Hall of Fame. So this, these, these are based uh, elections are based on individual statistics, and they shouldn't be... Uh, I don't believe you should you should cross into you know whether or not uh, you, you've won a Stanley Cup. It's often been said that the truly great ones will raise the Stanley Cup at least once in their career, and you know even and virtually all of the top you know 25 goal scorers of all time and point leaders have done so because they've been fortunate enough to be surrounded by players and by goaltenders that can help them win the cup. Maybe they made the biggest contribution, but you still can't do it alone as. Uh, uh, you know, as I said, as, as Dion um, proved, as Mike Gartner proved, he didn't win a cup, you know. So I, I just think it's, uh, when you look at this list, I don't know why it took nine years. You know, stuff. Maybe maybe three or four years, I could understand. But nine was a little bit beyond uh, beyond measure. Again, based on the criteria. I mean, you can argue, you know, was he a complete player? Who cares if he's a complete player? You put him with a good winger. He couldn't move him up from in front of the net, and he knew how to put the puck in the net. He did it six hundred more than 600 times. That's Hall of Fame. You know, you uh, you talk about the 640 goals in in Andrichuk's case. It was almost like it seemed like a yeah, but like like he scored 53 goals. He, they said yeah, but he was on a line with Dougie Gilmore, and then he scored 52. Yeah, but he was on a line with Pat Lafontaine for the longest time. That battle seemed to be something that Andrichuk was fighting. Well, Jonas Hoagland once scored 29 goals here in Toronto, and that was probably equal to the rest of his career total. Why? Because he was on a line with Matt Sundin. Is that his his fault? I mean, it's your job to, to when you're on line uh, on a line with uh, uh, a great playmaking center and you have hands. It's your job to convert and to score goals. <laughs> That's what makes you a Hall of Famer. Uh, so, of course, the the, the great uh, example 
and, and it wasn't at the beginning of Andrew Chuck's career, it's not like he was a kid anymore, was when he was traded to the Maple Leafs in February of 1993 from Buffalo for Grant Fuhr, the goaltender, went to Buffalo for Andrew Chuck. And he came in here, and the Leafs were starting to turn it around after a real middling first half of that season. They're starting to, you know, to get some wins, and they bring Andrew Chuck in, they put him next to Dougie Gilmore, and he scores 25 goals in 31 games. That's a Gretzky pace almost. You know, that's a Brett Hull pace. And he ended up with 52 or something that year uh, because you had the totals of, of what he achieved in Buffalo beforehand. And then, the, and of course, the Leafs came within minutes of playing for the Stanley Cup in 93, and that was still the closest they've gotten since 1967 uh, when Gretzky knocked them off uh, in that Los Angeles-Toronto conference final in 93 in Game 7 at Maple Leaf Gardens. And the following year, he scores 54 playing the entire season with Gilmore. The team didn't get quite as far in the playoffs, but, you know, I mean, the, the guy was a natural goal scorer, and he didn't score easy goals. He wasn't one of those guys that shot from the perimeter. He stuck his tush in front of the net. Some goals went in off of him, but more <laughs> often than not, he was there to park a rebound, like Phil Esposito did all those years, you know. Nobody ever said, uh, oh, does Phil Esposito belong in the Hockey Hall of Fame? He scored 100 more goals or so than Andrichuk, but still. You know, it's, uh, he, he, was, uh, he did everything you need to do for election to the hall, Dave Andrichuk. I don't, I don't know why you could make an argument against that. Now, I know that you have been quite vocal about why Andrichuk should have been in a while ago. You mentioned Ricky Vive, uh, that his name should be up in the rafters at the ACC. Who would uh, you like to see if, if you had a chance to lead a campaign to why this player should be uh, elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame? Who would that be? Well, I, I, I'd have to look at it, Ted. I don't really have something off the top of my head up until today. It was Andrew Chuck, <laughs> or up until yesterday. It was Steve Andrew Chuck. I mean, I'd have to take a closer look. And next year, Marty Brodeur is going to be in, and you know, he's going to be the highlight of, of, the, of the entire induction process. Don't know who else is available, but whoever else is available next year is likely to really pale in comparison to Marty Brodeur, who has every meaningful goaltending record on the planet um so you know but i'm saying i'm not saying this uh, you know because it's a coincidence you just asked the question andrew chuck was the guy that i felt should have been um again maybe not on the first ballot maybe not on the second ballot and, and i don't remember who was available nine years ago and eight years ago i'd have to look it up but uh certainly you know he was a guy that deserved to be in and i remember mike gartner too and i like mike mike uh, I covered him in his, you know, in his uh, three or four years with the Leafs. He's a gentleman. He still is. Uh, 700 goals in the NHL. Only six other people had done that, and he's not in the Hall of Fame. So I was pounding away there too. Others were saying, "What did he ever win?" Well, again, you know, not what is this tennis, golf? <laughs> you know, I mean, you don't win by yourself in a team sport. It's a, it's an unfair question. One of the uh, guys that I'm glad is uh, going in, of course, as you know, uh, I'm a longtime Philadelphia Flyer fan, Mark Recchi, a guy who didn't get a lot of attention, kind of like Andrew Chuck, but nice to see him going in the hall, in my yeah, opinion. Recchi was, Recchi was uh, maybe a, uh, a different type of player, smaller. Everybody remembers Recchi as being kind of a short uh, guy, and, and but but he again he did everything. He played in the Olympics, and he uh, uh, he led teams in scoring. He played for multiple teams uh, in the NHL. Five hundred seventy-seven goals. That's remarkable. You score I mean, five hundred seventy-seven home runs is going to get you again into Cooperstown, unquestioned. So here's a guy that uh, you know did it all, uh, Recky, and, uh, and and so he should be in as well. And that sort of completes that list. Uh, Andrew Chuck and Recky, I'm just looking again here, 
Uh, Andrew Chuck is 14th all time in goals. This is uh, going into this past season and um, maybe a Ginla. I don't know if he jumped ahead of Joe Sackick or not, but anyway, they're all in the same area, but he was 14th and Recky was 20th all time. And Recky's ahead of Mike Bossy, ahead of Newendike, ahead of Sundin, Medano. He's ahead of Gila Flork for crying out loud. Okay. He played probably more games, but come on, it's a no brainer. He scored all those goals. You put them in. Look forward to seeing uh, the induction uh, ceremonies uh, in uh, November when uh, Hamilton-born Dave Amnichuk will be the second born and raised Hamiltonian to get into the hall since 1979. Of course, Pat Quinn got in uh, last year. Howard Berger, longtime Leafs reporter and a blogger between the posts. Thanks for the insight and this. Great talking to you again, Howie. Right, yeah, no problem, Ted. And this day, between now and next year, we got to start a campaign for Bob Liddington. <laughs> Oh, there's so many names that I can... Fred oh. Boymestruck, there's another one. Well, Freddie Boymestruck, you know, there you are. I mean, I, was, I used to be Boymestruck just watching. Anyway, one, day you got, one day we'll do a call, we'll do a whole segment on that. Perfect. All right, Howie, thanks for All the right, time. Take, take care. care. Bye-bye. Howie. There's Howard Berger. I haven't talked to Howie in such a long time. So good to talk to him. So there you have it. Nine times, Dave Andrichuk. Well, he was nominated nine times, and he finally got in the Hall of Fame, and good for him, and congratulations, and look forward to that induction ceremony in November. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.